is the future of the PGA Tour at risk? Plus, a Hall of Fame member, a legend, will check in with us today and we'll give you all the details of the Wells Fargo. It's coming up with the Fairways of Life Worldwide. Welcome to the most listened to golf in the world, the Fairways of Life show, on air, online, and around the world. With the most candid interviews, unforgettable stories, taking you beyond the ropes. Here's your host, New York Times best-selling author and Golf Channel's Matt Adams. What is going on, folks? Welcome to the program on this Wednesday on the eve of the Wells Fargo Championship. Pretty stout field. I want to go through some of the details of the same with you coming up in just a little bit. But first, news yesterday of PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan addressing the players, and he was talking about what's now being called the Super Golf League. You may be familiar with the new moniker, perhaps you know it better as it was originally introduced, the Premier Golf League. And so there's, there's, there's news about it everywhere across the spectrum of the game right now. But I found an article on GolfChannel.com by Rex Hoggard, title reading, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan reiterates punishment for any player joining rival tour, sources say. And Rex writes the following. When the threat of a competing global tour emerged in early 2020, PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan sent a clear message to his membership. On Tuesday at Quail Hollow Club, he leaned into that message, according to sources who attended a player-only meeting with the commissioner. Following report Tuesday that the Saudi Arabian-backed Super Golf League had offered $30 million contracts to some of the tour's top players, including world number one Dustin Johnson, Brooks Kepka, Justin Rose, and Phil Mickelson, Monaghan reiterated that any player who joins the startup circuit will face immediate suspension and likely permanent expulsion from the PGA Tour. The Telegraph Sport reported Tuesday that the Super Golf League, which had been known as the Premier Golf League, was pushing top players to commit to the circuit, which would feature F1-style teams in an international schedule with plans to start play in September 2022. In just a moment, I'm going to break down and I want to get more details on the format of this proposed golf league, if, if that's uh, what it should be called. Monaghan acknowledged the new league poses a competitive threat and that the tour was aware that officials from the proposed circuit had been circulating many of the game's top players the last few weeks in Florida, which I thought was a fascinating revelation in this article I had not heard anything from golf circles that they were swimming in those waters and that conversations were being had behind the scenes. It was interesting. Obviously, I stepped away from the article. It was interesting because everything about what's now being called the Super Golf League seemed to have gone very quiet to the point that I thought perhaps it is past. I think what was really happening was it was it was becoming a bit of an arms war and it was, they were upping the ante. Uh, back to the article, talking about Monaghan. He also echoed his promise to protect the tour and its players and sponsors. According to one player who attended the meeting, Monaghan said he was not aware of any communication between officials with the Super Golf League and any of the major championships or various media companies that might be included in a new broadcast agreement. The commissioner also addressed the player impact program, which was created this year, and explained that the initiative is designed to encourage top players to become more invested in the tour in fan engagement. The program, which would be based on several measurements, including a player's Q rating and social media engagement, is designed to reward tour players most impactful via a $40 million 
bonus pool. So that news broke yesterday across the spectrum. I think uh, James Corrigan was the first that that broke it, as as was noted in the publication in that article by Rex Hargan. You can find that article at golfchannel.com. I think the commissioner of the PGA Tour is doing the right thing to react the way that he is. I think the fact that he is giving a strong response to this is important for those that love the game. I did see some comments on social media where people were essentially saying, what do we care? Golf is golf. The, the difference with this is, is that, now bear in mind, you, you notice in the article, he said that there's no knowledge that they have that they're communicating with the major championships. The PGA Tour does not control those major championships. The PGA Tour does have a partnership, though, with the European Tour. The European Tour is half the Ryder Cup. So the Ryder Cup would definitely, presumably, be impacted if this continues to fruition. The concern that I have, as always, when these things come up is what is the why? What's the why for this golf league happening. The why to me is about where the money's coming from. The why to me is about how you use something of this stature, which obviously is going to cost a tremendous amount of money if they're offering upwards to $30 million per player to be a part of it. Is that an annual fee? Is that a one-time fee? Is it balanced then against the player impact program that says if you're that big a global star, you could make upwards to millions and millions of dollars from the PGA Tour player impact uh, program alone, so you don't have to worry about the money that you would get from this super golf league. But to me, it's about using the game as a form of exploitation. It's about using the game to give exposure to other agendas. Part of that agenda is to bring tourists into a part of the world where traditionally the news that we get from that part of the world is not good. In fact, at times it is flat out horrific. Yet that is the money source that is backing these efforts. So now they're trying to exploit these players and their star quality to say, okay, we're going to use you for this greater end. We're going to use you for this greater agenda that we have in play. So the fact that the PGA Tour, while protecting themselves and not denying that that is their agenda in doing so, is also protecting the game from being associated with something that is and can be extremely dark and clearly is not being set up just for the good of the game to give us a format that we might enjoy in some other way. If that was the case, if that was the merit, golf and its, its bodies right now, whether you're talking about the European Tour, the PGA Tour, the Sunshine Tour, the Asian Tour, any of the tours could create different formats. And they've been toying with different formats over the last few years. And frankly, they have been enjoyable. So I think what's happening here is about more than the purity of the game and someone coming in in a massive free market and saying, hey, we're going to try something different here and see if you guys like this better than what's out there or take it in addition to what's out there and just put one more tray on the buffet. This is not about the buffet. This is rotten. So I like that the commissioner of the PGA Tour is reacting as strongly as he is because this is a threat. And it's a threat because massive amounts of money. And I hope that the players do what Rory McIlroy has said already. And that is operate with integrity and operate from their conscience and from their soul and say, I will not be a part of this. Uh, Dom, as I mentioned, you have information that, uh, that you've put together as well on what they're talking about with the format of the Super Golf League. You want to share that with us, please? Sure, they've altered the format slightly. Um, when they when they called it the Premier Golf League, there I believe it was 18 events, and they were, again, talking about a little bit of different formats and things of that nature, some teams, uh, and that has kind of been altered since with this new Super Golf League. 
They're now calling it five glittery events. This would be 2022, so this isn't like a long-term play here. Uh, each, each of which would feature 16 players grouped into four four-man teams drafted by a player serving as a team captain. So you'd have like Dustin Johnson picking okay. a team, essentially, in theory. Uh, the teams, which will compete in both individual and team formats, would consist of players from the top reaches of the world rankings. And obviously, um, Dustin Johnson, Justin Thomas, Brooks Kepka, Hideki Matsuyama, these are all players, Jordan Spieth, who have reportedly actually got official offers. Uh, the numbers vary anywhere from 20 to $30 million, depending on what reports you're looking at, uh, is being basically offered on the table to these guys. So it's definitely interesting, that's for sure. Uh, it is. It, it, it'll be interesting to see how it plays itself out, particularly because it appears as though the Super Golf League is it was trying to take a more benign approach and go, look, we're not we're not challenging the traditional way that the game is played. This is a a five event series and it's a team event, which is not new. Incidentally, that concept has been floated around for a while, and I don't mean that to disparage the concept. I'm just saying that it's not like it was just born out of yesterday. But this idea of putting tour players together as teammates led by a captain uh, representing either individual teams, which usually then are sold to investors, right? That's how all this, that's how all of this generally works. We don't have all the details of what they are proposing, but what we do know based upon the information that came out of Charlotte yesterday is that the response, at least from the PGA Tour perspective, is very much a very strong one that they're drawing a line in the sand and saying, if you cross this, uh, then you cannot come back. It is it is a immediate suspension and a permanent ban. Uh, what impact it has on other events? Now, again, if you play in a team event, if you took the money and you're no longer on the PGA Tour and you play in a team event and it's five events, even if you could play in the majors, that's not a lot of golf throughout the course of the year to keep, keep your game honed and sharp at, at an edge that you would need to compete in those same events at their highest tier. So how long would you be offered that money before there could be potentially a deterioration of your game at its highest level because you're not playing against the best of the best week in and week out? There's a lot of questions that surround all that. PJ Tour Superstore announced a pretty exciting announcement for one of our presenting sponsors, which we're really excited about. Girls Got Drive, uh, it, they put it together to celebrate uh, women to empower them to learn to have fun to excel at the game of golf. Uh, last year, there were six million females that took to the golf course. The rate of growth for females in the game of golf is two to three times over males. And females, incidentally, represent 48% of new people coming into the game. So we want to make them feel welcome. We want to make them retain them in the game. The, the cycle traditionally in the past had been in a three-year cycle that women would come in and they wouldn't stay with the game. So I think it's become, when we always hear people talk about growing the game, I think growing the game starts right here. Uh, I've said for years that I think women will be the, the long-term uh, guarantee of the survival of the game of golf because it's going to grow beyond its current base. Uh, there's so many reasons that it is exciting. The PJ Tour Superstore is also the official golf retail of Women's Golf Day, which is June 1st. Uh, they have special branded apparel av available there as well. So there is so much to be excited about. We're delighted that they have taken on 
this cause. PJTourSuperstore.com is the website if you want to get more information on any and all of what I was talking about. And I strongly encourage you to do so because golf can be a game of a lifetime and it can be for everyone. This is something really exciting for all of us to celebrate. So amongst the players that commented uh, at the Wells Fargo was Webb Simpson. Now, Webb talked about a, a number of different things. He's a player's champion. He's a major champion. But he did also comment on the Super Golf League, amongst others. Now, today, in the press conference schedule, uh, Justin Thomas will be speaking. At, he's, he teed off this morning at 7 a.m. for his Pro-Am. Rory McIlroy teed off at 7.10 a.m. for his Pro-Am. Uh, both of them were playing nine holes because of the way they do the mix and match. So you play with one pro, you play with another pro in the back nine. It's really cool. You get to meet more people and hang out with them. But both of those players are scheduled to address the media after they finish getting ready today. Max Holmes, uh, the defending champion, even though he didn't have it last year, he was a guy that won it last time, will be speaking at high noon today. Uh, at the region's tradition, remember a major coming up on the Champions Tour side. There are two press conferences of note scheduled today as well. Steve Stricker, defending champion at 1.30, and Ernie Els at 1.45. Jumping back, though, to Webb Simpson. Let's find out what Webb Simpson, who has a close association, obviously, with this golf course because he lives out there as well, had to say about his state of his game, everything that's going on in the game of golf, in particular the Super Golf League. Yeah, so I feel like it, it, it's been a bit up and down um, throughout, you know, since last fall. But I feel like we had a little turn at Augusta on the weekend, um, changed a little something in my golf swing and hit it great for four days at RBC Heritage. And so I feel like confidence-wise, I'm more confident now than I've been all season. But um, still looking, you know, to have a couple higher finishes, you know, have a, a few more chances to win Sunday. I think I've only had one or two chances this year to win. And, you know, that's what it's all about. That's what last year, I think what made last year so special is I had plenty of chances to win Sunday. And eventually you're going to get it done. Um, and so as I look, you know, kind of the next three or four months of golf, that's kind of what I'm looking for is more opportunities on Saturday, Sunday to be in contention. And, um, you know, I think what we're working on, you know, we'll see some fruit from. I think people assume, like, you know, if it's your home course, you should play well. Um, and I think what people don't realize is the golf course I'm going to play this week is very different than the course I play most of the year. You know, for example, number nine, I'm usually hitting anywhere from four iron to five iron into that hole. This week I'll hit eight iron and nine iron, depending on the wind. Um, so I even, you know, last week coming out here, I numbered three, uh, I numbered four balls, one, two, three, four, and started hitting tee shots on a few holes because I know this week my lines are going to be different with kind of how firm it is and. Um, so I relearn the course a little bit every year. And so I think that's one kind of misconception that I've got a lot of advantage. I think I have a tiny advantage. I mean, I really do. I think guys do such a great job in their prep work here Tuesday, Wednesday to get ready that there's not really such thing as local knowledge. Uh, and, and especially I don't play here a ton. I mean, this is my home cr track and, but I'm not, it's not like I'm busting a hundred rounds a year. You know, I'm, I'm probably playing once a month, 18 holes straight. Um, so I think that's one thing. There's expectation that I should play well because it's my home course, but it's hard. You know, it's hard. It's a hard golf course. I still still got to go out and hit the shots, make the putts. Thanks. Yeah, you know, it's been an interesting kind of couple of years with this other league. Um, I don't really get into the details at all. I let my agent handle everything. But it – from the beginning, it seemed like something that seems pretty far-fetched to actually happen, you know, to come in and shake up the way golf's always been. Um, and so, you know, I don't, I don't have an up-to-date, um, 
I don't have any up-to-date information, I guess, as to you know how it's progressed in the last couple of months. I haven't talked really about it since the Players' Championship. So um, I, I love the PGA Tour. It's given me an incredible opportunity these last 12 years of my life, and um, it's hard for me to believe that you know, it's really going to happen and the guys will really jump ship and go to a completely different way of golf than we've always had. Right, yeah. Do you, do you feel like the other, other guys in your position feel the same way where they're, they're happy with the PG Tour and the experience that they're having? I think so. I mean, I think some guys have spoken on it that they're very happy, very thankful for, you know, this particular opportunity we've had in golf. And I feel like it's only getting better. You know, purses are going up. Um, it seems like we play better golf courses and golf course condition is getting better. Everything seems to be getting better with the PGA Tour. Um, and so I think there's too many unknowns and too many things they would have to figure out for this thing to actually work. And, you know, are the best players in the world really going to go to this tour if only eight of the top 25 in the world ranking are going to go? I mean, I think as a top player, I want to play against the best. And at the end of the day, you have a career long enough I think most of these guys, they're financially set. They want to break records. They want to, they want to win, you know, be like Dustin, win 20 times, be a life member or whatever it might be. So you create a new tour. All these records get, you know, kind of thrown out the window, I think. And, and uh, I just think too many things like that are going to come up. And I, I don't think throwing X amount of money at guys is as appealing now as it maybe once was because of how great the opportunities we have on the PGA Tour, and what, whatever the number is, $350 million we're playing for this year and what FedEx has done, um, Wyndham Rewards, now Comcast. I mean, there's, there's so many opportunities for, for guys to make a great living here. Um, and if, if I'm a guy who's, who's on my way to make history, like a Dustin or, um, you know, a few other top guys, I, I'm going after – I want to go after records, not a dollar. And so – We'll see, we'll see what happens, but that's kind of where I sit on it. I think that's the quote of the day so far that we've heard. I want to go after records, not a dollar. Uh, that coming from Webb Simpson and some pretty strong comments. And I like the way that he described his advantage or lack thereof on the golf course because of the way it's set up for a PGA Tour event versus the way it's set up day in and day out or even month by month as he claims to have played it about once a month uh, living on the golf course as well. And... I also thought it was interesting that yesterday I was asking Dominic, who lives down the road in Raleigh, of course, about the weather in the, you know, greater Charlotte and Raleigh area. Dom, what, what's the separation between those two cities? Is it about an hour and a half, if I remember correctly? Yeah, about an hour and a half, hour 45. They're, they're west of where I am. Yeah, and, and yesterday I was asking you about how much rainfall you've gotten, because we're, we're starting to get into the time of year in the south where the temperatures can cook up during the day and it, and it causes these massive thunderstorms that don't last long, but drop a tremendous amount of water in a short period of time and whether it was soft. And you said yesterday, no, uh, everything is running hard and fast. And Webb just said everything is running hard and fast. So I, that for that golf course that's got plenty of brawn to it anyway, to be running hard and fast, I think is going to make the challenge even, even more acute. And I'm curious what they've done with the rough. Uh, if that rough is as thick as it used to be, when they had this event, because it was a lot of uh, Kentucky bluegrass and rye that would grow up. It was kind of a chef salad rough, and it was really thick and deep, which would, if it's hard and running, well, now you raise the challenge even more. It is uh, quite considerable. Now, in terms of your television coverage, and I'll give you the, the radio coverage and digital coverage 
of what's going on in and around the world of golf as well. Let's start with the Wells Fargo Championship. Uh, TV coverage will start Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and Golf Channel. Same time, same bat channel on Friday at 2 p.m. Saturday and Sunday, as you guys are see, can see on the television side, it is split between Golf Channel and CBS at 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. respectively. PGA Tour Live will be, by the time we come on the air tomorrow morning, they're starting uh, Thursday and Friday at 7 a.m., Saturday at 8 a.m., Sunday at 8 a.m. A featured hole coverage will be in the afternoon uh, on the weekend. And PGA Tour Radio will be at noontime on Thursday and Friday and at 1 p.m. on Saturday and on Sunday. PGA Tour Live is available through NBC Sports Gold through the balance of 2021. PGA Tour Radio is available for free uh, all over the world on the PGA Tour app on PGATour.com or if you pay for the satellite service in North America, Sirius XM. Uh, as I mentioned to you earlier, there is a major championship going on this week on the PGA Tour champions. Remember, like the LPGA, they have five of them. The region's tradition, television coverage of the same Thursday and Friday will start at 11 a.m. All the times I'm giving you are Eastern on Saturday and Sunday at 3 p.m. on Golf Channel. The LPGA Tours Honda LPGA Thailand will start tonight. Uh, actually, it, it, call me a liar, it's noon. Which which side you want to, or midnight, I mean, uh, which side you want to say it starts on, but it goes until 4 o'clock a.m. Correction, Dom just told me that the with the, the pregame and all the rest, it's going to start at 11 uh, p.m. tonight, and that will be the start time uh, for tonight and Thursday. And then on the weekend, the last two rounds, weekend starting on Friday, if you please, 11.30 p.m. will be the official start time on that one. Dom's in my headset saying, watch out for Jenny Shin. She was great to have on the program yesterday. European Tour, the Canary Islands Championship Open will start Thursday at 9 a.m., Friday at 9 a.m., uh, Saturday and Sunday. The start time will be 6.30 a.m. on Golf Channel. Again, all of the air times that I just gave you will be Eastern time. We have much more information to go through with you as to the Wells Fargo Championship, but we have an absolute legend waiting in the wings. Cannot wait for our next guest and to share with you not only the story that was so well defined by a Hall of Fame career, but the story of those that had to be competed against and overcome in order to author the same. It is the Fairways of Life show. We are worldwide and we'll be back with more right after this. Reminding everybody, log on to touredge.com. Check out their new 721 product line. The product line goes across the board. They have the C721 and the E721. One is the competitive and one is the extreme, uh, meaning extreme forgiveness, extreme technology. You can check out whatever suits your game, whatever you need. So you've got irons, you've got wedges, you've got hybrids, you've got fairway meadows, you've got the drivers. And as I keep telling you guys, the 721 driver, the C721 driver is honestly the best driver I've ever seen from Torridge. It's absolutely beautiful. And there's a reason why many of the best players in the world are gravitating to the brand. If you look at even reports of percentages of driver sales, right, by the quarter or by the year, Torridge has blipped up on all those reports now. They hadn't been there in the past, in fairness. They were out there doing what they're doing for years, but now people are really starting to realize that, wait a minute, I can get technology that's as good as everybody else, pound for pound, but they're also still the best value in the game too. And oh, by the way, they're covered by a lifetime warranty. Let that sink in for a second. Touredge.com to get yourself started. They're sold everywhere that fine clubs are. We'll be back after this.
Nestled amongst the hills of the Hoosier National Forest resides a classic American destination, the French Lick Resort. Experience the ultimate in golf at the Pete Dye Course at French Lick, voted number one course in Indiana on Golf Week's Best You Can Play for 10 years in a row. The Donald Ross Course at French Lick has been named Indiana's number two course in Golf Week's Best You Can Play rankings every year since 2011. Come experience old world opulence amid modern comfort served with Midwestern charm. Visit FrenchLick.com. TheGolfTravelGroup.com is a luxury golf tour operator that specializes in custom travel itineraries to Scotland, Ireland, England, Wales, Iceland, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, and more. Guaranteed advanced tee times, incredible accommodations, airport meet and greet services, private guided tours, and private drivers, all in luxury vehicles. And they have a staff that's been doing it forever. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. I'm Tiger Woods, and I chose Bridgestone. I wanted to be with a company that I knew, and then on top of that, that made superior product. So I did. I came back and I started playing with the Bridgestone Tour BXS, and it's allowed me to maintain the spin and the feel I like around the greens, especially my short irons, but also to have that penetrating flight through the wind. The aerodynamics have been phenomenal. I know the quality that Bridgestone has, R&D that's available to them, and what they were able to create that helped me win golf tournaments. Even though we're in Texas, we don't believe that bigger is always better. At Ben Hogan Golf, we believe in something called micromanufacturing, a concept Mr. Hogan taught us long ago. It's a belief that handcrafting golf clubs one at a time to your exacting specifications is the reason we make some of the best quality and best performing equipment in the world. And we don't believe in big prices. That's why we only sell directly to you at BenHoganGolf.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you in pain on the golf course? You know, pain management is a crisis in America. It affects over 100 million people and 35% of golfers, but now we can do something about it. BioFit 360 is a new company here to help us manage and alleviate that pain naturally. They've developed a formula that safely extracts CBD from the hemp plant and utilizes all of its healing properties to help us. They have a relief cream, they have gummies, they have sleep aids, and much more. It will change the way you feel on the golf course and in life. All you need to do is head to BioFit. 360.com. Feel better. Do better. Be better. Hi, I'm Brian Hammonds. You country club members can now represent your club and compete in a Ryder Cup style event. The inaugural Country Club National Championship presented by Fuzzy's Ultra Premium Vodka. It's October 12th through the 17th at Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The field is limited, so don't delay. For more information, go to ccncgolf.com. That's ccncgolf.com. I hope to see you and your team in Orlando. Streamsong is so special with three top 100 U.S. courses designed by four legendary architects. Tom Doak's Blue Course, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw's Red Course, and Gil Hansen's Black Course. Secluded by thousands of acres, the greatest golf stories are lived, not told. DreamSongResort.com. Welcome back to the Fairways of Life show on this Wednesday. Before we went on the air today, Dom told me that they have some video of Tralee, which uh, I'm absolutely very proud of. Actually, I'm a member of Tralee, and we're getting very close to where 
you know what, in earnest, you can start to say, I'm going back to Ireland. Why not? Log on to Ireland.com and you can see it. So they show me the video and I'm looking, I'm like, hey, that's me taking a picture. Look at this, look at this landscape. It's just so stunning. This was a golf course that its roots are in the design by Arnold Palmer. And he was so excited about this golf course that he designed. There's, there's a huge statue of Mr. Palmer right before you tee off at the first. They just recently redid the entire upstairs of the clubhouse that has this amazing panoramic view of, well, that. Look at that. If that doesn't take your breath away, I don't know what could. It, it is such a stunning setting. Uh, honestly, uh, it's funny that I didn't know that I was on that video. Uh, I don't even remember who shot it or when, but I can tell you that it's one of these golf courses that is so incredibly beautiful that you spend as much time, see, look at that, look at those shots. You spend as much time staring into the eyes of the eternity uh, as you do staring at the shot that's before you. It's really easy to get distracted. That's a par three we're flying over right now. And then you're looking at the green of the par 412, maybe one of the greatest par fours any place in the world. It is absolutely amazing. In fact, I would say the back nine of Tralee is probably the finest nine holes of Lynx golf anywhere in Ireland. And the front is quickly catching up because they've done more tweaking of six, seven, and eight on the golf course right now. So in fact, behind the first par three that you come to, uh, there is a, a castle ruin that dates back more than eight hundred years. There's a castle and there's a keep and each each one is on each side of the harbor of this little village. And reportedly what they used to do back in the day was they would run a chain or they would run a rope between these two stone buildings. And the reason why they had it there was was so that if the Viking invading boats would come in, say at night, they obviously wouldn't know that that was there and it would trip them up. It would rip their their boats apart as they're trying to get into the little harbor and attack the, the farming village. Just fascinating history like that. It is a fascinating place and it is but one of hundreds of places where you can let your soul fly free. Uh, just log on to Ireland.com and you can get all the details and w hopefully some of those details you're getting will be truly. I actually have the flag right back here behind me. So uh, I'm also absolutely delighted to tell you about, I've been, I've been teasing you about it throughout the course of the show, our next guest uh, on the program today. And he's, he's one of my favorite people in the game of golf because as I'm sure if you don't already know it from prior appearances here or in other media that he has done, uh, he's a deeply thinking person. He's a deeply caring person, but he's also immensely successful. Uh, if you had to say that you were one of only 24 people ever to have done something, it would seem impressive, no? Well, our next guest, Nick Price falls into that category because that is the total number of golfers who've collected 18 or more wins on the PGA Tour, amassed three or more major championships over the course of their career, yet somehow that is only one piece of what this man has accomplished at all. Nick has won 49 times as a professional, 18 times in the PGA Tour, as I mentioned, but also 11 times on the Sunshine Tour in South Africa, seven times in the European Tour, four times on the PGA Tour champions. His victories include, yeah, those three major championships, the 1992 PGA Championship, the 1994 Open Championship and PGA Championship in that magical year for him, and the 1993 Players Championship. He was an international president's cup stalwart. He played on five teams in 94, in 96, in 98, in 2000, 
and in 2003. He captained the squad three straight times in 2013, 15, and 17. He was the Sunshine Tour's Order of Merit winner in 82 and 83. In 93 and 94, he was the PGA Tour Player of the Year, uh, PGA Tour uh, money-leading winner as well at the time. He won the Varden Trophy in 1993 and 97. He was a Byron Nelson Award winner in 2000. In seven, he was the Payne Stewart Award winner in 2002. He won the Bob Jones Award in 2005, the Old Tom Morris Award in 2007. He's now uh, working with the, the USGA and advising on their committee as well. Uh, he's an accomplished golf course architect. Uh, and I'll tell you, when you look at proficiency from all that I just gave you, uh, that which the game is measured at its highest tier, he played in 87 major championships. Of those 87 major championships, he had 41 top 25s, 50%. He had 21 top 10s, 23%. And he had 12 top fives, including the three wins and the two runner-up. It is absolutely staggering. Such a delight, such an honor to welcome Nick Price to the program. How are you, sir? I'm good. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me on, man. <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have you on. I guess the, the first question for me, Nick, would be, how have you in the family gotten through this last year plus of madness? Well, you know, down here in Florida, I think we've sort of uh, relatively unscathed compared to the rest of the world. Um, we've had, you know, a lockdown back in, I think it was March, April for about six weeks or April, May. And then, you know, we played a lot of golf in the summer, which was terrific. I mean, all the courses stayed open and of course, um, that was probably one of the safest places to be. So I played a lot of golf last summer in spite of the heat that we had down here and all the rain. Um, but, um, you know, it's been very difficult. I think for all of us, especially those of us who travel a lot, um, you know, to have been stuck in one place. But I, I think if I look, you know, at me and my family, all our kids had it, uh, had COVID. Um, oh I think, yeah, it was, and you know, they, they were relatively, um, uh, very mild cases, a uh, few headaches, loss of um, uh, taste and smell for a short period yeah. of time. But, you know, uh, like I say, we were relatively unscathed here, but they have not been able to travel was really a tough thing, you know, especially now my wife and I, and I'm sort of semi-retired, that we, we want to travel a lot and visit our friends. It's interesting hearing you say all this because a million different things are running through my mind right now, Nick Bryce. First of all, you playing a lot of golf last summer when you were essentially on lockdown. Who does Nick Price tee it up with? Do you do you have a group of guys that you play with? Yeah, I've got a few guys, uh, you know, probably about six or eight guys that I play with on a regular basis down here. Uh, Matt Abel's a good buddy of mine. Tommy Aiken, who plays on the European Tour, he was stuck here for most of the summer. So he and I played a lot together. And then, you know, I've got another six, maybe eight guys huh. that... Um, you know, we sort of rotate through, depends on who's here and who's around. And, you know, a lot of, not a lot of people, a lot of people were working remotely, obviously. So they would have time to do their work in the morning or the afternoon and play golf in the morning. So it was, uh, it was good fun. I played a lot with my son too, um, during the summer, um, which got us ready for the father, the PNC father son, yeah. uh, in December, which we had our highest finish ever. I think we finished 14th, which for us is really good. Um, seeing as Greg's only been playing for, you know, eight years. And yeah. so, um, you know, it, it's just, it, it was it was a summer that we made the most of in spite of, of COVID and what was going on. That's awesome. You know, it's interesting because as you were talking about playing, even like if there's some guys in the European tour or, or players that you hook up a game with, 
I remember talking to Tom Watson about that one time, and he was he was when we discussed it, he was the, the same age as you are now. And I said, how often do you get them, Tom? How often do you come away and they, they've got to peel something out of their wallet? And he said, well, <laughs> he said, I use a lot of guile was the way that he phrased it, the experience that comes with perhaps not just brawn. Yeah. Well, I moved up a tee. So, you know, when I turned 60, I went up to the, to the uh, gold tees as we have them here. And I still play a little bit of a mix sometimes of the gold and the black tees. But, um, you know, if I play with Louis and Charles, Louis Ustazen and Charles Schwartzel, um, you know, I go up probably about 30 yards. They still outdrive me and they're still hitting two irons less than I am into the holes and they still complain that I'm going up the front tee. So, you know, you just can't win sometimes with these youngsters. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you win more often than not. I, I love that you're still staying in touch with the young guys too. Do people... Yeah. There's I nothing mean, better, was... by the way, than taking money from Louis Gustavo. That's what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I figured. And, you know, I'm also curious, too, Nick. We, we, we always ask uh, veteran campaigners such as yourself this question, but when you're around the young guys, do they take advantage of you and your experience and your knowledge? Do they ask you questions? Are you able to impart some knowledge? Uh, some do. You know, I mean, I don't really go and offer it. I, if they come and ask me, I will certainly help them. Um, you know, so I don't really... I don't like to be, you know, in the face of guys. I won't go up and down the practice tee, you know, sort of meet. I'm, I'm sort of more of a private person. So if the guys want to come up to me, I'm more than happy to, um, you know, to help them or answer any questions that they may have. I've always been pretty approachable. Um, but, you know, I, I don't really um, like the limelight now as, you know, because I'm older and I'm out of it, basically, you know, yeah. so <laughs> I like to sort of just hang in the, hang in the, in the, in the wings and, you know, uh, meet the guys. And, you know, I've met, obviously with the President's Cup, the little, those uh, 15, 13, 15 and 17, I got to meet all the young guys, uh, Jason Day, you know, well, you know, eight years ago, they were all young. They're all sort of uh, in their mid thirties now, but um, Hideki Matsuyama, you know, I, what a, fantastic story that was at Augusta this year and um, you know just it was great fun and there's Adam Scott you know one of the true gentlemen and and really one of the nicest guys on the tour so uh, it was great fun in that respect. Uh, you know I'm, I'm really looking forward to talking to you this morning about the President's Cup as well because you had a massive impact on the President's Cup that is that is going to live on for generations uh, well beyond the immediacy of, of time and place. But I, I will get into that in one second. I want I wanted to go back and ask you some early questions. I, I don't think I've ever asked you this in all the years that we've had a chance to chat, but when, when you were, were in the Rhodesian Air Force, what did you do? So I started off as a radio operator and doing ciphers and, um, and that way. I would go to the forward airfields, um, which where we would have fire forces or a reactionary force. And basically I would do, you know, air traffic control or I would sit on the radios and do all the radio work while the, you know, the helicopters and some of the uh, fixed wing aircraft that we had were engaged in fire against the enemy in those days. Um, and so if there were any casualty evacuations, I'd have to notify you know, the ambulance or the medics that were around and about there, um, you know, to come and pick the guys up from the helicopter and take them over to wherever. So, you know, I, although I never was in frontline action, um, you know, I think they kind of wanted me back a little bit from there because I was a sportsman. And um, so <laughs> I got lucky in that respect, but I did spend an awful lot of time in the bush, as we called it, out in the yeah. field. 
Um, I didn't really like being in the city because, uh, um, you know, we were always around a lot of the top brass and I was constantly saluting everywhere we went. And at least when I was in the bush, you know, I was my own boss. Anyway, then I, I progressed into, uh, onto the teleprinter system and uh, spent the last six months running a com communication centers in those uh, forward airfields. Do you think that in any way Nick Price as a man benefited from the experience in the armed forces? Well, you know, the greatest thing is in our intake, there were, I think, 96 of us. And you've got a real hodgepodge, a real mix of characters from all walks of life, from different schools, from, you know, different backgrounds. And so what you have to do is you have to get on, all of you. That's the big thing. All 96 of you have to work as a team. And we had the billets, and I think there were 24 in each billet. So we had four billets, or I think maybe two. I can't even remember how many there were. But, you know, we'd have an inspection every morning at like 5 o'clock. And if one guy was out, the whole lot of you got your bed packs and your, you know, your things turned over, your lockers emptied out and whatever, and you had to start again. So everybody pulled their weight. Uh, and that's what the great thing was. So even the guys who were really fit athletes when we were doing route marches, when we were carrying packs or when we were running, um, you know, the really fast guys would help the slow guys and, and help them with their packs so that we all got over the line at a prescribed time. And so that's what was so nice. And you, you're, the, the friendships that you make then um, are really uh, irreplaceable, I suppose, the bonding that you have with guys from that time. So, um, you know, it was it was a great experience. It was a great life experience for me. When when you joined the South African tour in 1977, uh, I'm, I'm going to phrase this in a generalized term and, and, and ask you to take it where you please, sir. How ready were you? Um, well, you know, I'd sort of had a sporadic uh, tournament. I, I played in, a, I don't know, a handful of tournaments in the 18 months while I was doing my service. But um, I really didn't have any kind of profession in mind. And I, I went down to South Africa. Um, I turned pro and went to South Africa. And basically, I was just going to try for two or three years because I had no idea. You know, there's one thing being a successful junior or an amateur player, but it's another thing that leap, um, you know, to professional golf. And, you know, I just, the first tournament I played and I made the cut and I think I finished like 26th or 27th and I made... I think it was uh, $210 and I'd been making $103 a month in the Air Force. So I had almost died and gone to heaven. I'd made, you know, <laughs> twice as much money in one week than I'd made in a, in, in a whole month in the, in the military. Right. But anyway, and I just progressed, you know, and I was lucky because from 77, 8, 9, I just sort of got better and better. And obviously I had a, a certain amount of talent, but my golf swing was all over the place at those days and I would play very streaky. You know, I'd, play, I'd play well for, you know, uh, one day and then I'd lose it for two and then have a great last round. So, you know, I'd suit 66, 75, 75, you know, 68 sort of thing. So <laughs> I knew I had to get some consistency if I wanted to do this as a long-term uh, career. When it was working for you with your victory uh, breakthrough at, at the Swiss Open, uh, and then I, I think about in 1982, uh, when you finished tied second at the Open to Tom Watson, and I mean this respectfully, Nick Price, at the time, the world didn't know who you were. And mm -hmm. here you were blipping up at, at the world's major. Uh, 
how significant at that time was that to you? And at that point, did you already believe or did that give you the conviction to go, yeah, that which I thought maybe is a definite? Well, you know, when you can fire, like, I mean, when I was on my game and I timing the ball with my swing correctly, I mean, I could shoot really low scores. But the, dif the difficulty was there was no consistency. So at the end of 81, I decided to go and see Ledbetter and I spent, you know, um, what, six weeks with him in March, April of 1982. And basically, he helped me so much with my golf swing. He, he really did um, try to get rid of a lot of the extraneous moves and, and moves that would rely on timing and tempo and that sort of thing and just make the golf swing more efficient. Well, you know, I'd had limited success as a professional. I think I'd won three times in South Africa and um, once in Europe, maybe twice in Europe up until that stage. Um, but I knew that when I played well, you know, I, I was fearless. I mean, really, I didn't have a problem playing against anyone who was playing well. But if I was struggling, you know, I, I couldn't make cuts. And so not four months later, you know, I'm playing the British Open and I'm leading uh, by, you know, three shots with uh, six holes to go. Yeah. Uh, after burning, birding 10, 11, and 12 uh, on that in that final round to to get ahead of Watson by three shots, and I, <laughs> I remember I was so pumped up. I walked onto the 13th tee and I said to my caddy at the time, Kevin Woodward, I said, "That's it. We've got this. We've got this now." Well, oh. that was a lot. Um, I ever said that in my life again. Because, <laughs> <laughs> needless to say, we <laughs> you saw what happened, but. Um, you know, that's the confidence of youth, I suppose. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it cost me. But I'm actually honestly quite happy I didn't win that Open because I think it would have changed my career and my the path of my life. Uh, I, I became more resolute after that and more determined. Um, and, you know, sometimes you hand that sort of thing on a platter, which almost would have been handing it to me on a platter because, you know, I just started working with lead. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, it might have been a bad thing. I might have made a lot of money and just got comfortable and relaxed and just been a journeyman the rest of my career. But um, who knows? But I, I really think um, that what it did do for me was at, at 25 years old, I, I knew to my, I said to myself, you know, even though you, you may have lost this Open Championship, you have the ability to win major championships, which up until that stage, I didn't really know. So... It was it was a godsend, especially, you know, on the heels of just seeing David Ledbetter in uh, for, for six weeks. So I just knew I was on the right track. Man. It's, it's fascinating, I think, for all of us, Nick Price, to hear you talk about making changes to your swing, tightening up your golf uh, swing, getting rid of the extraneous moves, as you framed with David, uh, because your golf swing is one of the all time iconic golf swings. Uh, you're you're. <laughs> You're playing, your ball striking, it's absolutely iconic. The, you were one of the players back in the day, that I'm sure you've heard before, that the sound of you hitting the golf ball sounded different than, than other people because of the way that, that you compressed it. Uh, when do you, uh, you said six weeks with, with David, uh, when did you fully own that swing? When did it become the swing that, that looked like robotic in, 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 uh, in terms of its repetition from that well, point on? First of all, I've got to go back and tell you a story, a quick story about Simon Hobday, who was one of my, one of my greatest friends and also one of the guys I respected. Um, had a wonderful, wonderful golf swing. It's one of the funniest people you'd ever meet in your life. Yeah. But I was on the practice. I was about 13, 12, 13 years old. 
and I was sitting behind him watching him hit balls. And I, I'd ask him, I said, Mr. Hobday, can I come and watch you hit balls? And he had a cigarette out of his mouth and he pointed to sit down there and watch. So after he hit about three bags of shag bags, his caddy was coming in and I said, okay, Mr. Hobday, what, what do I do to become a good player, a, a really good player? And he pointed to the middle and the sweet spot on the five iron he was hitting. And he said to me, if you hit it out of here more than the guy you're playing against, eventually you're going to beat him. <laughs> and so I don't know those sort of that sort of rung true to me so you know miss hit I try to hit the ball as solid as I possibly could um, for for that period of time or you know that, that was one of the things I learned from him um, but you know probably toward the mid 80s was when I started feeling that my game you know 85 I came I think third or fourth at the PGA uh, in, in Cherry Hills I played in the last group with Hubert Green and and Lee Trevino um, you know, then, then 86 at Augusta, I shot that, you know, finished fourth there. Um, in, and, and I had all these good finishes, you know, but I just couldn't get over the hump. I couldn't get to win. And eventually when uh, 88, I started playing really, really well, Tita Green in 87, end of 87, 88. And then the British Open at, uh, at Lytham when I went head to head with Sebi. Um, I actually outplayed him from tee to green, uh, but around the greens, he just destroyed the golf course and me. I mean, well, I don't want to say he destroyed me, but, you know, he beat me on the greens. And, and I can remember the next day saying to myself, you know, if I'm going to ever win major championships, I really have to up my short game. And so that's what I did. I spent, you know, um, the next two years really, <clears throat> excuse me, putting a lot more time into my short game. Uh, spent some time with Bob Rotella, who helped me, you know, simplify and direct my thoughts on the golf course instead of letting my mind stray all over the place. And it was a combination of those sort of um, elements. And then, you know, I got so much support from my wife, Sue, who, you know, would, w w was probably my, my best critic because she would never, she, ha she, ha she gave me no quarter. If I didn't do what I, she felt I was not practicing or whatever, um, she'd let me know about it. So it was great fun at those time, at that time. And it was, I could sort of see, I could feel that my game was coming together, but um, it wasn't until that Byron Nelson in 1991, um, where everything fell into place, where I, in the final round, I didn't hit the ball very well, which a substandard for me, probably a, <clears throat> excuse me, a six out of 10 ball striking wise, but my short game was a 9.8 out of 10 that day. And I ended up winning. And so this perception of me having to hit the ball perfectly to win a tournament um, suddenly went away. And it was all about, uh, you know, the short game. And that was when the floodgates opened for me. One of the things that's amazing in, in looking at your career and hearing you speak is the way that your career bridged generations. I mean, if we go a little bit earlier than the time frame you were just talking about, when you won for the first time in, in 1983 at the World Series of Golf, you won over Jack Nicklaus. We already talked about the fact that you finished second to Tom Watson at that Open. You finished second another time at the Open to Seve Ballesteros. I mean, you're talking about Pantheon players in the game of golf. But it's remarkable to me that from the time that you started to play to the time that you reached the height of your prowess in your career, Nick, you were surrounded the whole time, and you're one of them, by legends. And, and the legends came from all kinds of eras right up until the Tiger Woods era. It's, right. it's really quite remarkable. You know, I think uh, if you look at the modern-day player, I mean, they have so much access to 
a swing instruction. I mean, a lot of these young guys are getting at, at the age of, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 are getting fantastic instruction. I mean, and people who, uh, there's so many good teachers out there now because it's, there, there's video, high speed camera, all of the, um, you know, the, the, the track mans and all of the, the, just so much information. And you know, a, 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 like a 12 year old kid can put his swing on a split screen with Sebi's or Tigers or with Rory McElroy's or with Jason Day's and he can compare. And you know, kids are great mimics. So we often see, you know, these kids looking, oh, well, I can mimic, you know, Tiger Woods' swing. And that's what's happened. Um, the golf swing and the teaching has become so much more efficient than it was in our day. Most of the teachers back in the, you know, pre-video era did it by eye. And you had to have that natural eye, which, you know, there were a handful of guys that were outstanding, you know, back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And I was fortunate enough to work with one of those great teachers, David Ledbetter. But you had Butch Harmon, um, you know, just, there, was, there were so many guys that were, when I say so many, there were, uh, you know, five, six guys in those days who could really teach well. It's amazing stuff. Nick Price is our guest. For those of you listening to us around the globe on the digital radio side, for the TV side, you can catch us on multiple platforms speaking with this World Golf Hall of Fame member. I, I, I wonder, Nick, in the... In the the dark, dark hours of night, is there one shot, one shot that still wakes you up? The one where I really felt like I got skunked was that British Open at Troon in 1982. Um, I'd hooked my tee shot on the 15th hole, which was a tough par four. And I'd hit it up left where the walkway, where all the people had walked. And so it was flat and I had this beautiful clean line. It was nice and dry and whatever. And I had, I think, uh, about 200 yards or 195 yards into the wind to this par four and basically coming from the perfect angle from the left side of, of, uh, of the hole into this green. And just short of the green on the right, about 30 yards was this bunker, very deep, severe bunker. And about, oh, I don't know, five or six yards in front of me, there was a ridge that was about maybe six or eight inches high. And it ran, ran sort of at an angle um, to my intended uh, line. So it was probably running at about, I don't know, maybe a 40 degrees, maybe 45 degree angle to my line uh, of my shot. And uh, just short of the green, there was a little bit of a roll down where you could run the ball onto the front edge of the green. And I'd, I'd bogeyed 13. Anyway, I got over this four iron, decided to hit a four iron and run the ball on there. And I absolutely flushed this four iron right out the middle so well struck and it caught the top of this ridge i mean half an inch maybe a, a you know uh, a centimeter from the top of this ridge and it just my ball careened off to the right um and went in this pot bunker oh, it was it was deep bunker and anyway i had to play out sideways chipped on the green ended up making six but if you'd asked me if you blindfolded me and not asked me what had happened after i hit that shot i would have said I would have hit it about 10 feet. It was just one of those shots I flushed. So I ended up making six and then bogeyed 17 and lost the open by a shot. But I still often think that, you know, I don't know if it was the golf gods or what it was. They said, no, you're not going to win this open. You know, that's, uh, that was sort of like the writing was on the wall. When I look back, I think that's what it was. But as I say, it probably, 
helped me to be more resolute in my, in my career. When, when that writing was on the wall at 1992 at the PGA Championship, you closed. Uh, I, I'm curious, with that victory, uh, did it change you? Did it change the perception at large of Nick Price? And I'm not just talking about media and fans. I'm also talking about players, mm. et cetera. How significant was that milestone? Well, it was 10 years since I'd competed and contested my first major. So, you know, I felt like I'd paid my dues. And I think if you look at the way that I played that back nine on the Sunday at Bell Reeve, um, it was, I think I made one mistake. I bogeyed 15, but I played so well that back nine and I was methodical. I was calculating. I took my time. I didn't rush anything and, you know, ended up winning by, I think it was three uh, but it was a little closer than that going down the last four holes. Um, but, you know, it just instilled or, or it gave me the confidence now that I knew, you know, I'd got the monkey off my back. You know, I, I was now a major champion. And, uh, you know, some people when they win, there's a multiplier of confidence. And some people it's two times, some people it's five times and other people it's a lot more. For me, I was lacking in self-confidence, and I think that just propelled me, you know, into ground or air that I'd never been in before, because now I felt like when I played well, I knew I was going to win, and, and that's what I had tried to do my entire career. Mm -hmm. So to, to suddenly have that at the age of 35 and still have another, you know, five, six productive years in me was something very special indeed. I want to jump to the, the 1994 Open because at, at Turnberry, there is the indelible image of you leaping on, on the 17th green uh, and, and, and let you certainly tell that story because, because it's acute at this point, given where we were just talking about 12 years earlier at the Open and the one that got away. Uh, but what you did at 17, and I love when you tell the story, I would ask you to do the same, but that wasn't the entirety of, of the story in that, in that final round. It was a buildup to that point at the par five. Well, yes, Paponovic was playing so well that day. He was playing better than, you know, any of us out there. And I was kind of struggling a little bit with my ball striking, but I made two great up and downs uh, on uh, 13 and 14 from over the back of the green. I'd driven the ball in the first cut of rough got flyers both times, hit it over the green and up and down those to stay within, I think it was three of Jasper at that stage. And then uh, nearly birdie, had a good shot on 15 for, and had a chance to make birdie. But 16 was really a, a key, very key hole for me. A short par four with a huge burn in front of it and a false front that just anything that was short would come into the burn. And the pin was cut very close to the burn on the left-hand side. And I said to Squeak, I'm going to have to hit driver down here and get sand wedge on it so that I can put some spin on the ball. Because in times gone by, I'd hit sort of one iron, eight iron or nine iron. But anyway, I hit a really good tee shot down there. And where the pin was cut, just past the pin on the left-hand side, there was a little bit of a bank, a little bit of a mound behind the hole. Mm -hmm. And I hit the sand wedge, trying to bring the ball back off that slope. And I absolutely nailed it, pitched it one, hopped up on the slope, and then trickled back with a little bit of spin to about 12, 14 feet um, above the hole. And I had this really tough left to right putt. But if I didn't make that birdie, uh, you know, I don't think being three behind, I don't think I would have had that much of a chance, to be honest. Um, but I rolled that putt in and then the next hole, 
um, hit two really good shots into eight, into 17, and was faced with that 54-footer. Some people used to think it was a 90-footer, but it was actually, <laughs> it, it was actually 54-foot. Um, and just, you know, hit a putt that I was trying to just snuggle up there. Obviously, you don't sort of say you're going to make those putts every day, but I was trying to get it up there where it was, you know, where I could tap it in and go to the next hole and try and make a birdie. And, and you know, the ball went in the hole, and I'm running around the green, you know, yeah. like a chicken with its head cut off because I'm so excited, but I still had another hole to play. And, uh, <laughs> you know, my, my heart rate was probably up around 250 or 260, and I suddenly had to slow down and, and play the 18th hole, so which I, you know, hit a perfect three iron and then a seven iron to the middle of the green and two putted from 25 feet. Amazing stuff. I, I love that story. I love when you tell that story too. When, when you won the PGA Championship later that same year, at this point, this was Nick Price in full flight. Uh, this, you, you ended up becoming the number one player in the world through that stretch. It, it just it was amazing. And when you think about those years now, looking back on them, you know, we're not too far away from saying a full three decades on. It's not quite. Yeah. Uh, but when you think back on those times now, it's, it's got to warm your heart to think about that era and say, you set out to be the best that you could be. And during that time, you were the best that you could be. Well, there's no doubt that that 94 PGA, that summer of 94 was, you know, the, 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 the peak, the acme, whatever you want to call it, of my career. It was... Um, it was a time where I just felt when I was going to play well, it didn't matter who came along, I was going to, I was going to beat them. Um, and that was, that, there's no greater feeling in golf when not only you, you overpower, you, 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 know, you, you beat golf courses, but you also beat the best players in the world at the time. And, um, you know, it was, it was a great thing for me. And I, you know, I grabbed it with both hands, obviously, that period of my, and I didn't want to let it go because I'd worked so hard to get where I was. And in hindsight, I probably, you know, because 95 was a bit of letdown, then 96 was also, you know, I'd sort of lost that momentum. And I think in hindsight, I probably should have done less. Um, I did more appearances, you know, there were so many people tugging on your time. Sure. You know, um, magazine articles, interviews, not anything like it is now. I mean, to the guys now, there's, there's a never-ending, uh, you know, request for uh, interviews and, and, and that and to do, uh, you know, tips or uh, instructional things for magazines and online uh, instruction. But anyway, you know, that I would probably, if I had to go back and do it again, I would have taken it a little slower in 95, 96, 97, because you know, I, I had a tough time saying no to people sometimes, um, especially the guys that I liked, you know, the guys who worked, the reporters and the, and the guys who did instruction for golf magazines, um, Golf Digest, I was part of them for many, many years. And, uh, you know, they wanted to find out what, what's happened to Nick Price. You know, why has he suddenly become from a journeyman in the space of six years? He's now, you know, number one in the world. So, but uh, it was a great period in my life. And, you know, we had... Three of our kids were born in 91, uh, all three of our kids, 91, 93, and then 96. So, you know, that was just the cherry on top of the cake, or the three cherries on top of the cake, whichever way you want to look at it. But yeah. uh, there was so much going on in the life then, and you want to sort of, oh, please, can I just have this for a few more years? Classic. Absolutely classic. Uh, <laughs> Nick, I know you and I have discussed this before, but when it comes to the Ryder Cup, um, 
Walter Hagen was, was absolutely critical to the establishment and success of the event. I think Jack Nicholas, uh, but perhaps equally as much to, to perhaps even Walter Hagen, uh, Tony Jacklin was absolutely great. He doesn't get the credit that he deserves, particularly in the United States, for yeah. what he meant to the Ryder Cup as it exists today because of the vision that he had for what the then, what would become the European side needed to compete against the United States, uh, particularly coming out of a post-war uh, Europe and England that was still rebuilding right. decades later, in essence. Uh, I see the, the, the similarities there with, with your captaincy of the President's Cup. You went in with passion. You went in with vision. You had a profound impact on the way that, that the President's Cup is seen uh, in the world of golf, but also the way that it's administered on, on each side. In retrospect now of your captaincy in particular with the President's Cup, what are your reflections? Well, I had a great time doing it. I mean, there's nothing like team sport and team golf, as far as I'm concerned. The camaraderie and the bonds that you make with the people that you play with and the people that are on your team are things that you never really, uh, you never forget. And, um, uh, you know, I was just sorry that I was only on one winning team in all the times that we were, that I played or was part of it eight times. Um, you know, the, the, the President's Cup really needs to become more competitive. I mean, that's pure and simple as far as I'm concerned. And that's what I try to do was to try, you know, with the points change and that to make it more competitive. And I still think it should be a mirror image, just like, you know, the Ryder Cup, just like the Solheim Cup is the same format. We play for two extra points um, in the President's Cup, which I think should uh, you know, the, we should play 28 points instead of 30 points. Now you try and explain to the average Joe, average golfer, you know, hey, you know, we have a different format at the President's Cup. And they say, well, what's the difference? Well, you know, three years or five years ago, there were four points difference. And finally, we managed to get back to, to from 32 points to 30 points. But I still think that extra two points exposes the, the weaker team. I don't know, maybe it's not the weaker team. But the team that has um, players who aren't as strong, well, you know, weaker players, if you want to call it that, like 8, 9, 10, 11 in there. Our 8, 9, 10, 11 on the President's Cup team is very, very hard. It's very hard for those guys to compete against 8, 9, 10, 11 or, and 12 on the, on the U.S. team. So uh, when you go into a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup, you're lucky if you've got six guys five guys playing really well. Then you've got two or three guys who are playing okay. And then you've got three or four guys, or two guys at least, that are really struggling. And um, if it's compulsory to play those guys in the singles matches, well then, you know, it's, it's, you can have a situation like we had in New Jersey in 2019, sorry, 2017, where, you know, we were one point away from making Sunday not uh, existent. We, we nearly lost the yeah. President's Cup on Saturday afternoon, so uh, which would have been terrible for the event because no one would have watched on Sunday because it would have been a procession and just, <clears throat> you know, an, an exhibition. So I, I'm convinced that if they do go back, to, if they go to 28 points and we have a mirror image format of the, the, uh, the Ryder Cup and the Solheim Cup, you know, we, we may see more competitive uh, match. No, you may see more competitive President's Cups. Well, last couple <clears> of <throat> questions with Nick Price, our guest. When we started 
you mentioned, you used the phrase that you were semi-retired. I'm curious <laughs> how you define that. Well, you know, obviously golf is still, still a huge part of my life. Um, you know, my time with the USGA has been a real uh, experience for me. Um, I've, I've loved every minute of it. Uh, there's some wonderful people that work for the USGA. There's some wonderful people who are on the executive committee and they all love golf. Um, and, and I try to, you know, explain to a lot of the guys on the PGA Tour that the USGA is not the enemy, which was sort of the misconception over all the years gone through the previous 20, 30, 40 years. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are uh, the, the custodians of the game along with the RNA. And, uh, you know, it's, it's really interesting, you know, obviously with the equipment issues that are going on, the rules changes and the modernization of a lot of things, um, you know, they, they're trying to make things uh, where it, it's simpler for people to understand the game and to play the rules. And, and, and you know, because the rules are very ambiguous. I mean, that's why we have rules officials and every time you know, we need a drop, guys will get the rule official rules official because otherwise you know you dq'd and uh, but anyway um it's been great for me to be on the usga um and being involved and get behind the scenes but they've got as i say wonderful people there and then you know the golf course design business is picking up again because the economy has been good and we've seen the house sales and real estate and everything um, really skyrocketing now so we're starting to see a lot more activity on the golf course front Wonderful. Um, you know, and then I was doing quite a lot of uh, corporate work. I was probably doing about eight or ten outings a year. I still do the Valspar with my good friend Hollis Kavner. Um, so, you know, it's it, I keep myself busy. Uh, NickPrice.com, by the way, is the name of the website. If perhaps there's a, a redesign <clears throat> or some work that you need on, on the golf course that you are entrusted with, uh, you can get in touch with Nick Price. Maybe you want to build the golf course on a track of land or what have you. Fulfill your dreams with, by working with a Hall of Famer at that. Last question I have for you then, Nick Price, today would be, what would Nick Price, if you were the czar, what would Nick Price change in the game of golf right now? Well, you know, I, I think equipment is such a huge issue right now. Um, and, you know, people say, oh, the state of the game is really good and, and, you know, it's a lot of people entering the game and the clubs are a lot easier for people to hit. Uh, but in the last 25 years, since about 97, 98, we've seen a quantum leap in distance. And if you have a look at a graph, there's been a huge spike in those last 20 years, um, which, which is fine. If people don't want to change anything, that's fine. But to be honest, the way it's going, we will not be able to play major championships on all the classic golf courses that have stood the test of time. There's no doubt we'll be able to, there's a lot of those courses have no room to expand, which is needed to. So, you know, that's one thing I think, uh, you know, the USGA could do in the future and the RNA is just to start, you know, peeling back the equipment. And I'm not saying go back to, you know, back to the mid nineties or whatever, but, um, you know, I think just bring it back a little bit so that, you know, you know, the long drives are not 350 yards, they're 315, 320 yards. I, I don't know what that number is, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think the golf courses don't have a voice and people can skew all of the stats as much as they want to. But when you see guys hitting, you know, drive four irons to 600 yard par fives, which were designed as three shot holes, um, it kind of... <clears throat> 
it takes the sting out of some of the golf courses. So, you know, I think that's something that needs to be addressed. Plus, it's making golf very expensive now uh, because sure. the amount of real estate that we're having to, you know, purchase and maintain <clears throat> and water, uh, which is a huge issue, obviously, in California, is, is making the game a lot more expensive than it was 25, 30 years ago. Sure. Uh, by the way, before I let you go, I, are, are you following the Super Golf League at all with the news yesterday? That Jay I watched Monahan it and- a little bit, a little bit of it. You know, I don't really understand the whole thing. So, <clears throat> I mean, it's probably very similar to what, you know, Greg Norman tried to do with the World Golf Tour back in, in the 90s. Um, you know, uh, golf's very healthy right now. I think, you know, you, I, I always remember Arnold Palmer saying, you know, every time someone asked him about, an issue that was going on. He said, well, what's best for the game now? Is this going to be the best thing to happen to the game? I don't think so. I think golf is very healthy right now. I think, you know, the European tour, obviously they've had a really real struggle through COVID. Um, but, you know, the, the, the PGA tour is very strong right now. So, um, you know, I, I don't know. Is this going to destroy these tours? Is it going to hurt them immensely? But, um, you know, who knows? I, I, I think, you know, small change is good change. I, I don't like to see big change. Well, we'll see how that plays itself out. Uh, thank you, my friend, for the amount of time that you gave <laughs> us today. I was, I was very selfish in keeping you as long as we did, but no, I just no, find no. Your, your observations, your memories that you're, that you're so willing to share with us absolutely fascinating. Best to the family, and thank you again for, for joining us in the Fairways of Life show. My, my pleasure, Matt. Always good to chat, chat to you. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Absolutely amazing. Absolute legend uh, is, is Nick Price. It's such a pleasure to catch up with him as well. You know, where Nick Price was talking about equipment and making sure that equipment is dealt with accordingly for the long-term good of the game. Uh, equipment, there is one piece at least that should be important to all of us, regardless of your skill level, and that is your golf ball. Uh, every shot you hit, you'll be hitting that golf ball, we hope. And you want to make sure that the golf ball that you're hitting is the right golf ball for you. You can do that by logging on to BridgestoneGolf.com. Uh, they have a V-Fit option right on the website. You, you'll need some help from a friend of yours to make sure that, you, that you, you record your golf swing from the right angles. But when it's sent into Bridgestone, it's not an algorithm. It's not a computer that's, that's looking up and matching and, and pumping out a golf ball. It's actually going to an expert who's going to analyze what they see and help you pick the right golf ball. Maybe it's their new revolutionary Tour B golf ball with that urethane cover that gives you the power of not having to choose between either spin or distance. You can't have both in the same golf ball. Go to BridgestoneGolf.com and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. When we come back, we'll be talking about more of the Wachovia, or at Wells Fargo, I should say, the Wachovia is the old name of it, of the Wells Fargo Championship uh, in Charlotte after these words. Stay with us. If I told you legends like Robert Trent Jones Sr., Arthur Hills, and Donald Ross have designed and inspired more than 10 breathtaking courses and they're all in one place, would you believe me? Where is this special place? How far do I have to travel for this golfing nirvana? The answer could both surprise and delight you. It's right around the corner in the heartland of the country. It's Boyne Golf in Northern Michigan. It's a destination so special, so unique, that you'll think you're playing golf at a work of art along the cliffs of the Monterey Peninsula or the raw sweeping landscapes of Scotland. From elite instruction with the Boyne Golf Academy, tournaments and so much more, Boyne Golf truly offers an unrivaled golf vacation experience. Log on to BoyneGolf.com and see why they're at the heart of America's summer golf capital.
Come to where history meets luxury at the family-friendly French Lick Springs Hotel, where there's something for everyone, from kids' fest to shopping, bowling, golf, and other outdoor activities. Or at the West Baden Springs Hotel, you can wrap yourself in old-world elegance, visit our luxurious spa, indulge in an afternoon tea, a historic tour, and multiple sophisticated dining options. Then, finish your day with a cozy carriage ride before turning in for sweet dreams. Only this isn't a dream. Visit FrenchLick.com to plan your vacation today. What's your bucket list destination? Where have you always wanted to go? What's the number one thing that holds people back from doing that? It's fear of logistics. I don't know where to stay. I don't know how to get tea times. I don't know where to go. I don't know who should take me there. Well, I'll tell you who knows the answer to all those questions. TheGolfTravelGroup.com. That's why the Fairways of Life show has aligned ourselves with these experts. And is there some place you want to go, like the Open or a President's Cup or a Ryder Cup? They can take care of that as well. What is your golf bucket list? Where do you want to go? Do it with TheGolfTravelGroup.com. It screams. It tracks. It's soft. It reacts. It is the all-new Tour B with a game-changing reactive cover designed to spring faster off your driver and stick longer to your wedges. Try the new Tour B. The Tour Ball. Reinvented. Let's face it, there's no better feeling than getting new golf gear. And where you get your golf gear matters. PJ Tour Superstore is America's number one golf retailer. Whatever you're looking for, they have it. And you can get custom fit. You can shop online or safely in their stores. At the PJ Tour Superstore, you'll always find golf's biggest brands and all the latest equipment right at your fingertips. If you need it or want it, they've got it. Log on to PGATourSuperstore.com to upgrade your game today. Welcome back to the Fairways of Life show. Don was making fun out of me when we went to the break because I called the Wells Fargo, the Wachovia, and he was like, as we're going to break, he's in my headset going, and don't forget, in June, we'll be live from the Sammy Davis Jr. Greater Hartford Open. At one point, that event was actually called the Canon Sammy Davis Jr. Greater Hartford Open, which I think would have to be probably the longest name ever on the PGA Tour, maybe rivaled by... We'd have to do the, the space count, the number of, of characters. Uh, what, was, what was the full name, Don, when Justin Timberlake was, was doing the... Uh, uh, the Justin Timberlake, Timberlake Shriners, Shriners for Hospitals ha- Open for children. by Children's Hospital or something like that. Yeah, that one may have been... That Very may long. Have, that, they may have <laughs> I think challenged we, I it. think I actually spent 20 minutes of my life researching this like a few months ago for the show, and the answer was an event on the Corn Ferry Tour. There's a Corn Ferry Tour event that's massively long. Really? Current yes. or old? I don't remember. Because Corn Ferry Tour is, is a pretty long name for the tour. When you think about when it was the Hogan Tour, when it was the Nike Tour, Web.com Tour, what am I missing? They were all relatively short. The names. And then Corn Ferry Tour is longer. And then if you have the sponsors on top, I think this is something, Dom, you need to investigate. With, with great zeal. Yeah, I'm going to waste another 40 minutes of my life. That's I'll just keep saying, taking yeah. chunks of my life away the, to there's read nothing titles more, of tournaments. There's nothing more that I can do to upset Dom than to have him work out a project massive. And he puts in huge amounts of time and he's like, hey, I've got this done. 
when are we going to do it? And I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it, Don. We'll get to it at some point. I'm not sure. And then time and, you know, circumstance, we never really get to it. Like, like you've got um, that report. You're going to have like golf magazines calling you now going, dude, if you've done this report and you guys haven't used it, the report that you did about Hall of Famers by era. Oh, the parody stats. Yeah. Yeah. What about them? We never really got into it. No, no. I'm not trying to upset you. I'm the, just being honest. Let, I, think that's, I think that's item number 7,476 that I wasted hours of my life on that never saw the light of day. <laughs> hours. When I say hours, I am talking, I mean, I've been doing this show for 15 years. We're, we're hundreds, possibly thousands of hours of my life wasted on content and, and research and, and sound that's never seen the light of day. But I, I will stand by those stats that you're referring to because I actually, I actually think that we should spend some time on that. I don't know when, but yeah, yeah, I did some research. Yeah, basically, we'll basically what, it, what it says is right now in this moment today, there are more Hall of Famers and potential Hall of Famers playing simultaneously than ever before in the history of golf. And I have stats to prove that and back that up. In essence, so that, that's kind of exciting, I think. Yeah, in essence, what Dom is saying is we are in the middle of another golden age, if you will. No, and the golden age. God, you're such a historian. I'm telling you that this is it. And you're like, oh, it's another one of those special windows of time. No, it's the most special. Well, we'll get to that, Dom. At some point, we'll, uh, mm-hmm. we'll feature it. I'm sure we'll get it. The Bahamas, uh, great Exuma classic at Sandals, Emerald Bay. Is that, that it? Am I fit? Oh, well done. That was another thing he spent hours and hours on. So see, we were able to get, well, I'm glad we were able to work that in. You guys are, are looking up here at, or you can see it on the camera for those on the TV side. I'm holding these two drivers in my hand. These are the two that we're giving away this month. Uh, the Sim 2 Max driver will go to someone that subscribes to us on YouTube. Just find Fairways of Life on YouTube, subscribe to us, and you're in the running for the Sim 2 Max driver. And for Facebook, the Fairways of Life on Facebook, all you have to do is follow there. I know they use different terms. It's a subscribe on YouTube. It's a follow on Fairways of Life on Facebook. And for that, we're giving away the TSI 2 driver by Titleist to one of you. And we're going to be doing that this month. And the response has been fantastic. And we appreciate that. So good luck to any and to all. A PXG's line of 0211 golf clubs as well as PXG's founder, uh, Bob Parsons, who likes to say that's going to knock your hat in the creek. And by that high standard, you know that the 0211 irons, their driver, fairway woods, hybrids, they do deliver killer performance and they're offered at a killer price. 0211s give every golfer the opportunity to experience PXG's patented technologies and unbelievable performance. Visit pxg.com or call 844-PLAY-PXG to learn more. PXG, nobody makes golf clubs the way we do, period. Let's go through how and when and where you can get your Wells Fargo Sands, the Wachovia, this weekend. Starting with the television coverage on Golf Channel. You can see it there if you're with us on the television side. Thursday and Friday starts at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Each of those two days, Saturday and Sunday, split between us and CBS at 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern time, respectively. Uh, The uh, PGA Tour Live and PGA Tour Radio coverage, uh, by the time we come on the air tomorrow, PGA Tour Live will be. Uh, They come on the air at 7 a.m., both on Thursday and on Friday. On the weekend, they start at 8 a.m. PGA Tour Radio is at noon on Thursday and Friday. 
and it's at 1 p.m. on Saturday and on Sunday. Uh, let's let's continue to go down this road with, with the air coverage and where you can get it. First of all, there's a major championship going on on the Champions Tour, and the uh, region's tradition can be seen starting Thursday and Friday at 11 a.m. on Golf Channel. On Saturday and on Sunday, it will be at 3 p.m. each uh, respectively of those two days, also on Golf Channel. The Honda LPGA Thailand, that coverage will be coming on at 11 p.m. starting tonight, please note. And then it will finish up on Friday and Saturday nights for their weekend rounds. It will start at 11.30 p.m. each of those two nights. And on the European Tour, the Canadian Canary Islands Championship Open, Thursday and Friday at 9 a.m. will be the start of the coverage, Saturday and Sunday at 6.30 a.m. Again, all Eastern time and all on Golf Channel. So it gets you fully caught up. Thank you, thank you, thank you to Nick Price for joining us today. Uh, he's amazing. He is a legend. And getting the chance to hear him recount his stories. Uh, one thing just in, in reflection that made me smile was when, you know, I asked him about that one shot, the shot that still to this day wakes you up. And he talked about that four iron from 1982 at the Open. And the way that he, he was nearly forensic in the way that he recounted the details of that shot and what it meant. Absolutely classic. So it was really fun. Uh, thank you to all of you for your company as ever, to, to Andrew and to John and to Dom for putting it all together. We'll be back again with you tomorrow if we're spared. Until then, goodbye for now.